You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to episode 134 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We used the last episode to look at the first major engagement of the Peninsula Campaign, which was the Battle of Williamsburg on May 5, 1862. As the Confederate Army, led by Joseph E. Johnston, retreated away from Yorktown and up the peninsula toward Richmond, the fighting at Williamsburg was really just meant to be a delaying action by the rebel rear guard, which was commanded by James Longstreet. The Williamsburg fight was intense, considering the relatively small numbers of troops involved. The battle is best remembered for the fighting that took place on the Confederate left flank, where a Union force, led by Winfield Scott Hancock, crossed Cub Creek and secured a lodgment. At that spot, a feudal Confederate charge, led by Jubal Early and D.H. Hill, was smashed as the 24th Virginia and 5th North Carolina were stopped and hurled back by the Federals. While George McClellan, the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac, managed to absent himself from the battle at Williamsburg, and his subordinates, for the most part, badly bungled the management of the fight, Winfield Scott Hancock, nevertheless, managed to emerge from the battle with a nifty nickname, Hancock the Superb. Another engagement that occurred during the Confederate Army's retreat up the peninsula took place on May 7th at Eltham's Landing on the York River. On May 3rd, McClellan, in an attempt to cut off the rebel retreat, had ordered William Franklin's division to be loaded onto transports and proceed up the York River, which formed the northern flank of the peninsula. After coming ashore at Eltham's Landing, Franklin was to strike inland and cut the main road the Confederates were using as they fell back toward Richmond. It was a good idea, but when Franklin's troops landed on May 6th, one day after the Battle of Williamsburg, They were by that time a couple of days too late, since the Confederate retreat was already well underway. And rather than poke a stick into that particular hornet's nest with his lone division, Franklin decided to simply consolidate his position there behind enemy lines and wait for the rest of the Army of the Potomac to come marching up the peninsula and reach him. Joe Johnston, the Confederate commander, had expected McClellan to use the York River to try and cut off the rebel retreat, and so Johnston had ordered a force to take up position about five miles from Eltham's Landing and guard against a possible Union assault from the river. On May 7th, one day after the Federal landing, part of the Confederate force, including the Texas Brigade commanded by John Bell Hood, engaged in some heavy skirmishing with the Union troops, fighting in which Hood and his men displayed what would become their trademark aggressiveness. 
Meanwhile, Joe Johnston and the Confederate Army continued to fall back toward Richmond. While McClellan continued his slow but steady pursuit of the retreating Confederate Army, a most unlikely field commander arrived to open a second front in Little Mac's Peninsula Campaign. On Tuesday, May 6th, Abraham Lincoln arrived by ship at Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula. Frustrated by McClellan's month-long delay in front of Yorktown, the president was keen to visit the front and find out firsthand just what was behind the slow progress of the campaign. As Lincoln's private secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, later wrote, the president wanted, quote, to ascertain by personal observation whether some further vigilance and vigor might not be infused into the operations of the Army and Navy at that point, end quote. Lincoln also wanted to check on the feasibility of a plan proposed by Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who had accompanied him on the journey, along with Secretary of Treasury Salmon Chase. Stanton's plan focused on neutralizing the Confederate ironclad CSS Virginia. As we've mentioned previously in this story arc, the continued lurking presence of the Virginia was a problem for the Peninsula Campaign. The rebel ironclad was a threat that couldn't be ignored, and in fact, that threat was preventing the Federals from using the James River to support McClellan's advance up the peninsula. As y'all recall, the James River formed the southern flank of the peninsula, and actually the Confederate capital, Richmond, lay upriver on the James. If you picked up or already had on hand our book recommendation from episode number 129, that Echoes of Glory Civil War Atlas from Time Life, on pages 46 and 47, you can find a map of the peninsula and see all the places we've talked about. Fort Monroe, Yorktown, Williamsburg, see where Franklin's division landed up the York River near West Point, and there's the James River and Richmond. But just off-map to the south, just across Hampton Roads from Fort Monroe, was the CSS Virginia's home port of Norfolk. And as Secretary of War Stanton pointed out, the Confederate retreat up the peninsula had left Norfolk exposed and vulnerable to a Union strike. You see, everyone in Washington had had a bee in their bonnet regarding the Virginia ever since March, and the Confederate ironclad sortie out into Hampton Roads against the blockading Union fleet, and then her historic battle the next day with the Federal ironclad USS Monitor. And now that there was a golden opportunity to neutralize the Virginia, Lincoln and his companions meant to see that an operation was launched to capture Norfolk. Exactly. With the help of the Federal Navy and the 10,000-man garrison at Fort Monroe, Abraham Lincoln intended to capture Norfolk and thereby deny the Virginia her base. The man selected to lead the operation was the 78-year-old commander of Fort Monroe, John E. Wool, who had begun his distinguished career fully half a century before, during the War of 1812. Since the start of the Peninsula Campaign, Wool hadn't been impressed at all with George McClellan and the two generals had butted heads, but there wasn't much that Little Mac could do about it since the War Department had issued clear orders stating that the garrison at Fort Monroe was to remain a separate command under Wool. So now, quite apart from McClellan's operations, 
Lincoln ordered Wool to land troops on the south shoreline of Hampton Roads and then advance on Norfolk. The president, along with Stanton and Chase, used a tugboat and a revenue cutter to personally carry out a reconnaissance to select the best landing site. At one point, Lincoln went ashore to inspect one likely spot and, under the bright moonlight, strolled up and down the beach on the enemy-occupied shoreline. After the president showed that a landing was possible, Wool and 5,000 men went ashore the next day, May 10th, and began their march on Norfolk. Wool was accompanied by Treasury Secretary Chase, while Lincoln stayed behind to hurry reinforcements across Hampton Roads. A soldier on one of the transports watched in amusement as the president, on board the flagship USS Minnesota, tried to supervise the goings-on. The soldier later recalled how, quote, Abe was rushing about, hollering to someone on the wharf, dressed in a black suit with a very seedy crepe on his hat, and hanging over the railing. He looked like some Hoosier just starting home from California with store clothes and a boiled shirt on, end quote. As it turned out, old General Wool didn't need any help. He had landed and encountered hardly even token resistance. The next morning, accompanied by Sam and Chase, he marched up to the outskirts of Norfolk, where the Union force was met by the mayor, William W. Lamb. The 9,000-man Confederate garrison, commanded by Benjamin Uger, had already evacuated Norfolk, but left behind a demolition crew to wreck the nearby Gosport Navy Yard. To give the wreckers more time, Mayor Lamb deliberately dragged out the surrender ceremonies. A witness later remarked that the mayor proceeded, quote, with all the formality of a medieval warden. Despite the destruction of the Navy Yard, the federal operation was a glowing success, especially with regard to the fate of the Virginia. In the event of Norfolk's fall, the ironclad's commander, Flag, o- Flag Officer Josiah Tatnell, had intended to take the Virginia up the James River to Harrison's Landing, some 35 miles from Richmond, where he might obtain supplies and also be in a position to once again block off the river to the Federals. But to negotiate the shallows and sandbars in the river, Tatnell would have to substantially lighten the big ironclad, reducing her draft from 22.5 feet to 18 feet. The river pilots assured him that such a reduction would be enough to make good his escape. But the sudden haste of Uge's evacuation of Norfolk gave Tatnall only a few hours to carry out his plan, and no choice at all as to the timing of his escape. On the night of May 10th, the, the Virginia's crew worked frantically to remove the ship's ballast and anything else that could be spared and still allow her to fight. After five hours of back-breaking labor, they had reduced her draft by three feet, but the river pilots then told Tatnall that the prevailing wind was wrong, and so high tide at daylight would not be high enough to carry the ironclad, even with its reduced draft, over the first bar at the mouth of the river. And so Tatnall ran the Virginia aground near the mouth of the Elizabeth River, took off the crew, and set the big ironclad on fire. Early on Sunday morning, May 11th, just before dawn, the flames reached the magazine and the Virginia blew up. Hey 
Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Abraham Lincoln headed back to Washington on May 11th, but he pressed Flag Officer Lewis Goldsboro, commander of the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron, to take immediate action, now that the threat of the Virginia had been removed and Federal warships were free to enter the James. Goldsboro, in turn, ordered Commander John Rogers to proceed up the James with three ironclads and two wooden gunboats. The Union ships were to sail upriver to Richmond and shell the rebel capital into submission. As a consequence of Joe Johnston's retreat up the peninsula and the CSS Virginia's demise, Richmond was thus threatened on two fronts. Panic gripped the Confederate capital, the Virginia legislature voted to burn the city rather than see it fall into enemy hands. Preparations were made to ship the Confederate government's records to South Carolina. The Treasury's gold reserves were crated up, ready to be loaded aboard a train that was kept under, under steam. Deserters, wounded soldiers, and refugee families from the peninsula poured into Richmond, spreading tales of woe and doubling the city's pre-war population of 40,000. People started to flee the endangered capital city, including Jefferson Davis's wife, Verena, and their three children, whom Davis sent off to Raleigh, North Carolina. On May 13th, Jefferson Davis wrote to his wife, saying, quote, The hasty evacuation of the defenses below and the destruction of Virginia hastens the coming of the enemy's gunboats. I know not what to expect when so many failures are to be remembered, yet will try to make a successful resistance, end quote. The next day, May 14th, Davis called in his military advisor, Robert E. Lee. The Confederate president and his cabinet wanted to know if the capital were lost, where, to the south, the next best line of defense for the army could be found. 
General Lee suggested a position approximately a hundred miles to the southwest, but then, with a motion that surprised those in the room, Lee declared, quote, "But Richmond must not be given up; it shall not be given up." Though the gravest threat to the rebel capital was McClellan's army, which was slowly but surely marching up muddy roads and byways toward Richmond, the city was terrified by the more immediate danger posed by the Federal warships that were now free to sail up the James River. Rogers' flotilla consisted of the ironclads Monitor, Naugatuck, and Galena, along with the wooden screw gunboat Aristook and the sidewheeler Port Royal. At 6.30 in the morning on Thursday, May 15th, Rogers' squadron came within sight of the Confederate defenses at Drury's Bluff, named for property owner Augustus H. Drury and officially designated Fort Darling. Drury's Bluff was a mere eight miles downriver from Richmond, and initially the rebels had given little thought to defenses there because they assumed that the Virginia would prevent any Union advance up the James. Work had only started at the beginning of March and intensified following the loss of Yorktown. Drury's Bluff was the best and indeed the last place for the Confederates to halt the Union flotilla's advance up the James River. There, the river took a sharp turn and narrowed. Sheer 90-foot bluffs dominated the south bank and at their top, the rebels placed a battery of three heavy guns. To obstruct passage upriver, they also sank a number of old ships midstream and used pile drivers to position cribs of stone and other debris in the channel. Knowing that his wooden gunboats were no match for the Union ironclads, Commander John R. Tucker of the James River Squadron sacrificed one of his two most powerful ships, sinking the Jamestown in the river as an added obstruction. Tucker's squadron added five guns to the shore defenses. Those were placed outside the works, giving the defenders a total of eight guns. The four rifled guns and four smoothbores commanded a mile of the river downstream. Augustus Drury himself commanded the batteries, since he was actually captain of the South Side Heavy Artillery. Navy Lieutenant Roger App Catsby Jones of the Virginia had charge of a detachment of Marines and seamen from the ironclad who had hurried to Drury's Bluff after their ship's destruction. A brigade of rebel infantry occupied rifle pits along the river bank. And finally, the gunboat Patrick Henry took up position behind the obstructions in the river, adding its guns to the Confederate defense. The Confederate defenses were well placed. The James was too narrow at this point for the Union ships to maneuver, and the obstructions in the channel easily blocked the deeper draft ironclads from proceeding upriver. Before the Federals could hope to work at removing the obstructions from the middle of the river, they would have to neutralize both the shore batteries and the Confederate infantrymen. At a quarter till eight, Rogers brought the Galena to about 600 yards from the bluff and anchored broadside to the channel so that the ship's guns could be brought to bear. Even before the Union ship was positioned, the Confederate defenders opened the battle by sending two shots slamming into the Galena's port bow. At about 9 a.m., the Monitor passed the Galena and attempted to join the fight, but her guns couldn't be elevated far enough to actually fire on the enemy batteries along the top of the bluffs, so the Monitor retired downriver with the Aristook and the Port Royal. The battle, which ended at about 11 a.m., 
saw the Confederates fire perhaps 100 shots and the Union ships half that number. The Naugatuck's 100-pounder Parrot rifle burst halfway through the engagement, putting that ship out of action, and the Port Royal was kept busy trying to suppress the Confederate infantry along the riverbank. Most of the Confederate fire was directed against the Galena, and she took a terrible pounding. The ship was one of three experimental ironclads ordered by the Navy in 1861. She was commissioned in April 1862, was 210 feet long by 36 feet in the beam. She was equipped with a two-mast schooner rig to supplement her single-screw propeller. She was unusual in having tumble-home sides that were protected by three-and-a-quarter-inch armor formed of interlocking iron bars. The battle revealed the serious shortcomings in the Galena's unique design. The ship was struck 43 times, and 13 of those penetrated her armor, with one shell smashing through the ship and embedding itself in the opposite side of the hull. By the end of the battle, the Galena was taking on water, and 13 of her crewmen had been killed and 11 more wounded. Corporal John B. Mackey of the Ironclad was cited for bravery in the action and subsequently was awarded the Medal of Honor. Mackey was the first member of the U.S. Marine Corps to receive the medal. Confederate losses in the battle were seven killed and eight wounded. Despite the serious damage to the Galena, Rogers withdrew his ship only when it was nearly out of ammunition. In his official report, he noted with some irony with regard to the Galena that, quote, we have demonstrated that she is not shot-proof, end quote. As the Federal squadron retreated back down the James, the defenders of Drury's Bluff cheered and hurled their caps into the air in celebration. Their defensive stand had staved off the waterborne threat to Richmond. When news of the victory reached the Confederate capital, the populace celebrated as well, though only briefly, for by then McClellan and the Army of the Potomac were less than 25 miles from Richmond and still advancing, slowly but surely, toward the city. The Army of the Potomac was still advancing, but still only slowly. In fact, McClellan's advance up the peninsula was so deliberate that the one-armed but feisty Union General Phil Kearney privately referred to McClellan as the Virginia Creeper, a sarcastic allusion to the local climbing ivy. Little Mac had established his headquarters at West Point, at the head of the York River. On May 10th, the Army of the Potomac began moving out from West Point, headed for McClellan's next objective, White House Landing. While one contingent of the army marched overland, McClellan led another 15 miles west up the Pamunkey River, which was a tributary of the York, to White House Landing, where the Richmond and York River Railroad crossed the Pamunkey. The rail line then continued on west to the Confederate capital. At the landing lay White House, the 4,000-acre plantation on which George Washington had courted the widow Martha Custis. Now the property belonged to the family of Robert E. Lee, whose wife was the granddaughter of Martha Custis Washington. By May 16th, the most of the Army of the Potomac was encamped along the Pamunkey between White House Landing and Cumberland Landing to the south. McClellan posted a guard around the Great House on the Lee Plantation and established an enormous supply depot at White House Landing. 
Scores of ships steamed up the York and then the Pamunkey, bringing the 500 tons of supplies needed to sustain the Union Army each day. Barges also brought five locomotives and 80 rail cars, which McClellan had kept loaded and waiting in Baltimore Harbor. The trains were to supply the troops as they marched west and closed in on Richmond, and the rail line would also be used to carry forward Little Mac's beloved siege guns. In the midst of these preparations, McClellan got some welcome news from Washington. His repeated requests for reinforcements were about to be rewarded. Because of his strident complaints about the withholding of McDowell's corps, he had already been given one division of that formation. But now he was to get the rest of the First Corps, and also additional troops led by James Shields. The reinforcements, which would add up to about 40,000 men, had been stationed at Fredericksburg, midway between Washington and Richmond. This encouraging development contained an important and unwelcome catch, however. Though McClellan wanted McDowell's troops to come by water, joining him at White House Landing, Abraham Lincoln insisted McDowell march south toward Richmond by the most direct route. As the president saw it, this overland route would save time and would also let McDowell stay between Washington and the Confederate Army. Whatever the merits of either route, Lincoln's decision meant that Little Mac would have to readjust his plan for taking Richmond. In preparation for the link-up with McDowell, Little Mac reorganized the army into five corps of two divisions each. He had intended to send the bulk of these forces due west, along the railroad, where it runs south of the Chickahominy River. But in order to join with McDowell's southbound corps and cover his base at White House Landing, McClellan had to extend his right wing. This he accomplished by deploying three corps, Sumner's 2nd, Franklin's 6th, and Porter's 5th, in a northwesterly direction, so that they stretched from the railroad along the north bank of the curving Chickahominy for a distance of some 10 miles. On the extreme right, Porter's corps was drawn up near Mechanicsville, just six miles northeast of Richmond. Meantime, south of the Chickahominy, McClellan deployed his left wing. Key's Fourth Corps proceeded westward along the Williamsburg Road and dug in near the crossroads called Seven Pines, only six miles east of Richmond. Heinzelman's Third Corps was stationed five miles to Key's rear. By May 24th, all the federal dispositions were complete. The tips of both wings of McClellan's army, on the far left and far right of the Union line, were so close to Richmond that the officers could set their watches by the chimes of the Confederate capital's churches. And that's where we'll leave things this week. Next time, we'll find that an unexpected wrench is thrown into the works, as far as the anticipated link-up between McDowell and McClellan. And we'll also see how Joseph Johnston decides to finally strike the Yankees as he tries to take advantage of how Little Mac's army is split north and south of the Chickahominy, with the result being the Battle of Fair Oaks. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Ships of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, An Illustrated Guide to the Fighting Vessels of the Union and the Confederacy by Kevin J. Dougherty. This particular book recommendation was inspired by the battle at Drury's Bluff, 
And there are tons and tons of great illustrations in this book, including, on pages 32 and 33, the USS Galena. Don't forget you can find a handy list of all our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. It's been a while since the last episode, so we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this time. Paul T., Douglas M., Scott W., Mike R., Jane R., and Robert H. And Robert also gave a very generous donation, so we're very appreciative of that. We also appreciate Spiritwood Music's permission to use the song Midnight on the Water as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. And we wanted to remind y'all that Spiritwood Music has some beautiful, beautiful instrumental Christmas music. So with the holidays coming up, this would be a great time to check that out on either iTunes or Amazon. Or you can go right to their website at spiritwoodmusic.com. Okay, so please do support Spiritwood Music. They're good folks. And then as we wrap things up, we'll say thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.